So I've been teaching for 11 years. I've had one student in my entire career who came to the university before they were a freshman with the intention of becoming a financial planner. You are listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Now here's your host, Hannah Moore, a CFP and the owner of Guiding Wealth Management. Thanks, Charlie. This week we have Dr. Nathan Harness, who is a TD Ameritrade Director of Financial Planning at Texas A&M University. Today we're talking with Nathan about the past, present, and future of financial planning. And what's so exciting to me about this is that we really can have an impact on the future of the profession. Before we jump into this episode, I want to take a minute to talk about the next-gen gathering that is happening outside of Chicago next month. This event quite literally changed the course of my career, and I cannot recommend it enough. The event is sold out this year, but we have one scholarship spot available through the Year of Financial Planner Now What podcast. Go to financialplannerpodcast.com to fill out the form. We'll pick a winner on May 19th, so be sure to get your entries in today. Let's jump right into the podcast with Dr. Harness. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Nathan. Thank you. I'm so fascinated by this idea of financial planning's history and how much that's informing like what's going on today and where we go in the future. And in talking with you, you are in academia and putting together a paper on the past, present and future of financial planning. So I thought that was such a such a great fit for what we really want to do on this podcast. So before we kind of really jump into like the details of you know, financial planning and, you know, what, where we've been, why do academics care about this topic? Like, why is it important for you to be researching this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think part of it is, uh, as you, as you look at the formation of academic institutions and we're still relatively young, I mean, we're talking about from an academic standpoint, a, um, a profession that is less than 30 years. So we've got a 30 year old profession inside as an academic discipline that's really exploded in the last three to five years that we've seen an explosion in the number of academic institutions that uh, have financial planning programs. So for us, um, it's interesting because I've worked both in the profession and then I've, I've worked as an, as an academic and there in, in every profession, there's oftentimes a somewhat of a disconnect in the way that we interface. You've got academia and then you have practice. And the question is, how can we both be growing one another? And uh, so all the players don't often, as often as they need to come to the table in helping each other grow. Uh, And I I find that across any discipline. But in financial planning, um, I think because we've evolved so rapidly out of so many different areas, we have this conundrum of um, where do we go from here? How do we grow going forward? And and you and I have, have spoken in the past about even just, are we a profession? So is this literally a profession uh, if we define it in true academic terms? And then, you know, secondarily, what are the commonalities between um, practice A and practice B? So if I'm out in the field, um, can I triage clients like in the the medical industry and have common practice when somebody comes in so that if you go from firm A to firm B, there's some similarities there. They, they, They aren't going to produce the same product because there's an art and science to financial planning. But on the science piece, is there enough basic benchmarking going on that each one of these firms would have some commonplace uh, starting points? 
So am I understanding that in order for us really to be a profession, we have to have kind of those underlining commonalities with how we present a financial plan and how we do investments and what our recommendations are? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, there is a pretty interesting article. I'm trying to pull it up in my brain um, written by a group actually out of Australia in defining what is a profession. So how do we actually define what a profession is? And um, there are, from an academic standpoint, a multitude of, of layers that, you know, you've got to have this, a, a professional body. The, the, the five loose pieces are this, a system, systematic theory, an authority, community sanctioning, ethical codes, and a culture. This is how, uh, this is Greenwood in 1957 that proposed that a profession would possess these five main elements. If you think about financial planning, it has a lot of these pieces. It's, it's interesting of what is the authority, right? And this has come up in play with the DOL recently. But when you think about how we're actually regulated, so the regulation associated with our profession, it centers around the sub elements of what we do a whole lot more than the comprehensive nature of what we do. It's more complex. So if I want to establish, let's say, an RIA firm, I have to take a series license. With my series license, the complexity of, uh, you know, you have to have sponsorship. Technically, to take the, the exam, you don't have to have sponsorship. You can have it unhoused for one year. Eventually, it has to have a sponsorship. So you got to park your, your series license somewhere. With your series license, there is no background education necessary. It's passing an exam. As a matter of fact, I was just looking at this the other day because I find it fascinating. It is more complicated in the state of Texas. There are more tests and more uh, time and energy spent in the number of hours necessary to become a, uh, a barber than to become an RIA series licensed individual. If you look at the complexity to become a barber in the state of Texas, there's two exams and it's a little over a thousand hours of practice required before you even have the ability to be a barber. That's not the case when we're talking about being an, an RIA. Now, of course, hopefully we're transparent enough to where a client is going to recognize, okay, this is the firm I don't want to do business with. They don't have, um, a background or, um, they don't have practical knowledge to address my needs. That, that's under the hopes that there isn't an a information asymmetry, that our clients approach us knowing full and well who's good and, and who isn't. So from an authority standpoint, we already have somewhat of a problem uh, in that we're regulated more at the micro level than we are at the macro overlaid advice that we give where, uh, let's say, investments overlaps tax, overlaps retirement, where all of those meet that holistic advice that we give. There isn't some common body that is going to, to regulate that. So the authority is a, a little complex. Um, the, the community sanction and ethical codes and culture, to some extent, has grown at the academic base out of our relationship with the CFP board. So the way I talk about our program is that we are um, a, a program that has been approved as an education provider by the CFP board. 
But it doesn't mean that that's all that we do. It just so happens in the creation of a quality financial planner today in our program that we're moving in the same direction that the CFP board is moving. So that doesn't mean that every student that comes out of our program goes on to take the CFP. We encourage them to, we think it's probably the next step in their profession, but it doesn't in in moving into a profession, but we do not say that that's a requirement for us and for our students coming out. So um, the CFP boards helped us to, establish some sense of ethical codes as have some of the secondary licenses and the series license that we may have as we practice financial planning. The culture I think is still evolving and the systematic theory is the academic piece. So the systematic theory of what is the theory of financial planning, I think is still loosely evolving. I wouldn't say that it's fully established yet in the holistic nature of what we do. If we break it down to its subcomponents of just investments or just uh, accounting, or a tax rather, or just retirement. Some of those have systematic theories within them, but it's the advice of all of those brought together that I would say still doesn't have systematic agreed upon theory. So I was having a conversation with an attorney a couple months ago because I was I was very interested in this idea, um, kind of in that authority idea. And they were talking about like, you know, the state bar is what really oversees a lot of like the attorney conduct. Um, And so in an ideal world, would the CFP board be that authority? Yeah, that's a really interesting question as well. So we have to go back and look at how other, um, other professions have been formed. And this is one of the pieces. Uh, so, so what I'm referencing here, by the way, so I give uh, credit where credit is due. I've been working on a paper with uh, Dr. Vicki Hampton uh, and a PhD student, um, Jacob Williams out of Texas Tech, uh, Luke Dean out of Utah Valley, and um, with Charles Chafin on the CFP board. I will say that the viewpoint that I might mention today might not exactly align with the viewpoint of the CFP board. So I'm not a representative of the CFP board. This is a personal opinion of Nathan Harness. So just, just a little disclaimer there. Um, with all that said, we've been working on this paper and trying to come up with the past, present and future of financial planning. And in looking at the past, it's been real interesting in documenting where we've come from and then running a comparative analysis of where have other professions come from. And so uh, if we look at the early years of, let's say, uh, accounting, moving uh, into the discipline of becoming a CPA, it starts all the way back in 1896. This was the beginning where New York State recognized this terminology of a certified public accountant. That was the beginning of it. Uh, If you fast where that came from and where most professions came from really is in the 1800s, early 1900s with industry associations. So you would be a member, let's say, of the New York Bookkeepers Association. And in each one of these associations in different states begin to come together and have some common accepted practices. Now, as we fast forward in time, 
many of them received true recognition when they were regulated at the state level. So if we look at CPAs regulated at the state level, if we look at the med- uh, medical profession regulated at the state level, if we look at professional engineers, PEs regulated at the state level, all of this comes at the state level. Each one of those states come together and most of the time agree on common practice and examination that uh, so you can you can without too much effort move from one state to the next. Okay, so looking at the history of financial planning, how has financial planning been regulated in that sense? Well, to some extent, it hasn't. So Dr. Hampton, when I was speaking to Dr. Vicki Hampton recently, she brought up a, an interesting point that I'd never thought of before. And it was the point of uh, origin. If you think about the medical profession, or um, let's just stick with medical or accounting, If we think about accounting or the medical profession, they grew out of being generalist. So I'm a general medical practitioner. I can handle all problems. I'm a bookkeeper in the accounting world. I can handle all accounting problems. So they were generalists at the beginning that as you move through time, where there was common acceptance, they became specialists. So you have your general practitioner doctor that you go and visit. And that individual is going to, because they have a strong education in this area, solve your baseline problems, but they're going to refer you to a specialist when it's outside the scope of what they do. And to me, that mirrors well financial planning, except we started the opposite way. When you think about financial planning, we started as specialists that are growing into becoming generalists. So I'm a lawyer or I'm an accountant or I'm a retirement specialist or many of us came out of insurance or the investments world. I move out of those and say, you know what, now I want to put on a hat that makes me a generalist so that I can move into a space of giving you advice. And this is this a lot of this came out of the investments world because if you if you back up into uh, a lot of this happened after May Day. So if you look at May Day, I can't remember what what year that was. Uh, with, with May Day, we had this deregulation of commissions. With this deregulation, I've heard Kitsis talk about this a couple times. We've seen the uh, the the cost associated with commissions drop by about ninety percent. All of a sudden, the value that we were providing, which was due to access to a product, no longer was there. So we had to come up with a new value proposition. That value proposition moved from access to advice. When we're moving into the advice space, if we're just specialist, then we have very specialized advice. So everybody or many decided, I want to offer more generalized advice. And that's where some of the original conceptual framework for financial planning is, is offering general advice, but I start out as a specialist. And so when you have a profession that starts out as a subspecialty that moves to general practice, everybody wants to approach it from their specialized perspective. So if I am a transition industry and I'm an investment specialist, for example, but I want to offer more general advice, I'm still going to be very focused on the investments piece. That's the piece where my energy in in my expertise has driven from. And so that's the, that's the lens through which I'm going to view a lot of problems. So we're in this weird, uh, interesting transitionary period 
where we have a lot of specialists that are also wanting to wear a generalist hat, but they grew out of a specialist track. Meanwhile, in academia, we begin to create these financial planning programs. Inside these programs, many of them are housed in colleges of business, but they're also housed in agriculture. They're also housed in human sciences. Those would be the three broad colleges where the majority of financial planning programs are housed. Many of them uh, approach financial planning from a holistic standpoint, saying, yeah, investments is a piece of a financial plan, but it's not all of a financial plan. And so you've got a generation that's coming into our industry that has, at least to some extent, more of a generalized view of financial planning. So we've got this culture class, right? We've got these specialists with an incoming crop of generalists that is trying to figure out how our profession sort of goes back to the beginnings of how the medical profession or uh, accounting evolved from generalists into specialists. So it's really a unique period of time for our profession as a whole. There's just so many implications that I can think of. You know, we talk a lot about like the generations within financial planning, but that's such a unique way of looking at kind of the the bigger clash that's happening right now. Yeah, it, it, it is. I see it to some extent when I play students, right? So our students will go out with very generalized um, financial planning uh, capabilities, but maybe they go to a firm that's more of a wealth management firm. And so that firm is specializing in offering s- to some extent holistic advice, but they still have several of their clients in their client base that have only come to them for investments. So they're wanting to make the transition of offering more, but not quite sure how to make that transition. So they'll hire some of our students to help with some of the holistic advice. And you end up at, in a really interesting um so we could move even into the world of 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 generational divides between let's say uh baby boomers and millennials they're they're very different one from the next so we have this sort of this culture clash within a firm even of um just cultural differences uh and and how people approach uh the, the working world uh, but we also have a special specialization that's unique so uh let's say a student coming out of the average financial planning program today has experience using financial planning software. We have somebody that's uh, created a firm 35 years ago before there really was software. And and many of them have tooled up and can continue to... uh, learn and really excel in advance in how to create plans in in a technology space but but others haven't uh, jumped uh, with both feet into that world so it could be um, that there's some real value add in introducing a young adult into a practice who can make plans who can develop financial plans for an advisor who has spent much of their career specializing in one area of planning. So there is, when done correctly, I think those two, uh, two worlds can meet very, very well because we need specialists just like the medical profession does. And we need generalists just like the medical profession does. I don't go to my general practitioner, um, and have them solve surgery, you know, a surgical problem. They can point me and say, you know what, this is a problem and let us show you holistically where that problem is, but we're going to send you over here to the specialist. And you see some firms that offer that kind of large scale practice where it's here's our investment specialist, because that's where your real problem is. Let's go ahead and solve that problem right now. But by the way, this is a whole body 
even after surgery, this is a whole body solution. So after surgery, you need to be eating well, you need to be resting appropriately. Uh, so we need to bring in a nutritionist. We need to bring in all these individuals to help you recover from what just happened. And so we need a team of individuals and that could be somebody that wears multiple hats, or it could be a, a firm that has a multitude of specialists inside of it. So it's, it's interesting again, how this is unpacking, uh, in, in these last, you know, 10 or so years. So interesting. and so fascinating. I can't wait till getting into like the future of financial planning, but before we get there, can we talk more about like, what is the past of financial planning? So I know a lot of people attribute like the beginnings of financial planning in like the sixties. Is that kind of where you view the beginning of financial planning? So I'll tell you the person that could talk on this all day is, uh, Professor uh, Bill Gustafson out of Texas Tech. He spent a decent amount of time, and Texas Tech has the archives of financial planning where they've started to pull together um, pieces of information. I've talked to a number of those who entered financial planning in the late 60s um, slash early 70s, and I said, write some of this down because we're literally living with the icons that started this industry. We've lost, even in this year, several of those individuals, and we need to make sure that we're capturing that story of our beginnings. And I think there are people out there that are doing this, but we need to continue to capture that story of our beginnings uh, from multiple vantage points because everybody's going to see the beginnings just slightly differently, right? So when all those people came together in the room, some people attributed uh, 1969 to the 13 professionals that formed the Society for Financial Counseling Ethics and the International College for Financial Counseling. And then together with the IF, uh, IAFC, uh, all happened in Chicago. So many would say that was sort of that Chicago O'Hara meeting was the establishment of the College for Financial Planning with all of these subgroups that came together. There have been some splits here and there, fast forwarding in time. I think the first, if I remember the first CFP exam was 1972. So the first class of CFPs was 1972. Um, and the first graduating class from the College for Financial Planning was 1973. So we've had a, a multitude of things that have occurred since then. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in uh, sort of the evolution of financial planning from, from that point going forward. I know 82, the I, uh, IAPF starts a registry. 83, uh, NAPFO is formed. A number of colleges begin to, to jump in. So if we look from an academic standpoint, we had some early folks. Uh, interestingly, some of those programs aren't even around anymore. So we had some of the early financial planning programs that aren't here anymore, but you may know some of the household names uh, in financial planning that were a part of the original um, group of, of universities that came together to, to start from a university standpoint, um, teaching people holistically to be financial planners. So, and then you see the formation ultimately of the CFP board and CFP boards movement uh, from, from Colorado out to DC. And, uh, I think part of that move was, uh, in an attempt to, to have a voice in, in Washington and to, uh, make sure that those who were regulating understood the needs of, of our profession. So, um, that was sort of the, the original formation. Everybody can probably add a whole lot. I wasn't there, so everybody can probably <laughs> add a, a whole lot more to fill in a lot of the gaps of what I just talked about. Uh, nonetheless, I think much of it is important because if you, just like in a financial plan, if you want to know where you're going, you got to know where you began because 
by knowing where you began, you understand the obstacles and opportunities in getting where you want to be. And so the beginning of where we came from and understanding some of the culture clash, understanding the differences of opinion and how we're formed is very, very important. I'm trying to find, I have a quote, so I've got my computer up and running here and there's a quote, if I can get to it fast enough, I don't know that I can, uh, about the starting of a profession and how complicated that is. Because when you're trying to start a profession, there are going to be people who simply disagree. They're, they're just not going to agree that this is the way um, the profession should be formed. I'm not going to be able to. Oh, here it is right here. Let me give you this quote. This came from uh, Kogan, 1955. He stated that reactions to defining a profession tend to be polarized towards an enthusiastic and uncritical acceptance or towards a rancorous and defensive rejection. Love the way that he says that. So as you're forming a profession, you're going to have people who say, this is the way it should be done. You're going to have others that say, no, it's this way. So some are going to be in full favor and some are, are not going to like the idea. In the end, it's like bringing Democrats and Republicans together. You got to come together and have some sense of, a, of agreement. And I think our professions um, in, in a better place, hopefully, than our, our politicians are to come together and make uh, forward thinking decisions. You know, as I've learned more about the history of the profession, because I am also young <laughs> and wasn't there for a lot of it, um, I've just been so amazed at how significant it was. Some of these, some of, like the fact that we have the CFP exam, the fact that we have the CFP board, and the fact that we have all of these other organizations. Like, it's it's pretty incredible what people were able to accomplish in those early, like, 10 or 15, 20 years. I agree. And I think part of that centers around the fact that it was about the clients. A group of people got together and said, it's about our clients, not about us. And if the discussion starts from the view vantage point of how do we do the best thing for our clients, then we're, we're moving in the right direction. Going back to this history, I think it's also really important, um, even just in young, you know, in conversations that I'm having with other young advisors, a lot of the stuff the conversations, it's like, they've already had these conversations, not that we shouldn't still be having them. But it's like, we can go back there. It's, it's like reading a paper on something and having a discussion versus being the one to write the paper. Like it, it mm -hmm. gives you that further stand, like further understanding. So we, we can like push that conversation forward. Yeah. For the next generation, of course, of financial planners, it's going to be, um, what, what are we doing now and sorting, sorting through that most appropriately and thinking about the future too. So how, how do we, how does the next gen, that, that's a real big buzzword, right? Next gen millennial, two big buzzwords. How do these two enter into our profession and make waves and move the ball forward? So one of the things that I've heard a lot of people talk about is, you know, people who've been advisors for 30 years say, you know, there's been more change in the last five years than they've seen in their entire career. From an academic standpoint and from your perspective, have you seen that as well? Yeah, I have. And part of that is um, the number of individuals that are embracing financial planning. So if you just look at the growth, and I, I don't, I can't quote the number because I don't know it, but if I, I, I can tell you it's large. If you look at the growth and the number of programs offering financial planning at universities across the country, 
it's it's been a phenomenal growth rate. So we're seeing more and more institutions um, that are offering financial planning at the undergraduate level. However, the bulk of test takers still to this day are career changers, or at least those who are coming into certificate programs. The bulk of those who set for the CFP are still people who are already either in the industry or want to make a change into the industry. It's not coming from a, an academic discipline standpoint. So I think if we want to if we want to impact, especially young adults uh, that are in the industry today, if we want to have an impact on the future, we can do so by investing in the present. And that is those who might want to become financial planners. Not a lot of research that I've seen out there on looking at um, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders and whether or not they want to enter into profession, uh, the profession of financial services, which encompasses, by the way, a lot of other things. However, our clients look at us as being in financial services. So one area that I think we could grow in is making sure that the end user, our clients, understand what it is that we actually do and how we're different than some areas of financial services. When you lump all those groups together, what unfortunately happens is there can be this perspective that um, what we do in financial planning is the same thing as what an investment banker does on Wall Street, and um, those two are very different one from another, and can have a, a very one can have a very negative viewpoint uh, on, on what goes on. So I saw a study out of the UK. And uh, the study was looking at 11th, I think it was 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, asking them uh, what profession they wanted to go into when they graduated. And so um, they were given a, a list of professions. And interestingly enough, 9% re replied positively towards financial services. Now, we would fall underneath that umbrella of financial services. There, By the way, there was only one profession below us, and that was construction. So that's where we rank among those who are entering into the university setting. So we've got our work cut out for us. I know um, Texas Tech's been working on this. They have their Financial Planning Academy that's uh, held over the summer where they're engaging. I think Schwab sponsored that, if I remember correctly. They're engaging young adults uh, before they ever enter college and spending a week with them, showing them what financial planning really is, what financial literacy really is, so that when they enter into college, this is an option for them. Out of my entire academic career in financial planning, I've been doing this uh, at the academic level. I've, uh, it's been 11 years now, so I've been teaching for 11 years. I've had one student in my entire career who came to the university before they were a freshman with the intention of becoming a financial planner. Never happens. Most of the time, I speak in a class and convince somebody that financial planning is a good field for them and show them information that they've never heard before. So if we want to move the ball forward, one, for future clients, and two, for future individuals to enter our business, we need to show them that you can enter our business by going to college. This can be a profession for you because I think if you poll the average 10th, 11th, and 12th grader as they're determining what they want to do with their lives, we are not an option because we haven't shown them that we are an option. That's really interesting. So the 
like the action item for that would just be to go like talk to high school classes or volunteer um, at like local community events. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think it's a multitude of things. So yes, K through 12, there's a great organization called Junior Achievement. I, I have my college students uh, as a, so my our program is built around the core values of the university, and one of those core values is selfless service. So if if, if we say that's important to our university and important to our students, then we better be doing it. So we've partnered with Junior Achievement where our students go out and we've adopted Greens Prairie Elementary here in town, the second grade class. Whole, every second grade class they have is comes through a Texas A&M student that teaches them the difference between uh, needs and wants and basic financial literacy. So I know that sounds crazy, second grade, but at a very young age, we want them to understand some of the basic elements to make their life better, but also show them that there are people here to help. So yes, entering in K through 12, going to your daughter or son's career day, all of these little things of showing that this is a profession for you. And then even at the collegiate level, because there's an immediate need too, right? There's this immediate need of showing uh, a freshman and sophomores on campus that this is a great profession. I've heard Kate Healy at TD Ameritrade say this, and I, and I, and I've, uh, I always give her credit, but I've quoted the line several times. And it is, you can't be what you can't see. And so if students can't see that this is an opportunity for them, then they're never going to be a part of it. So, uh, yes, action items, get involved. Easy way that's already established, junior achievement. It's already going. And it's at at, uh, K through 12 all across this country. So that'd be one way to get involved. You know, your church, any outlets that you have to begin to speak with this next generation and say, not just tell them what you do. But tell them this is for you. And then secondly, reach out to your local college and university in your area and ask them if they have a financial planning program. And if they don't, ask them why they don't have one. So administrators at universities across this country need to understand that you want to hire people who came out of financial planning programs. You're not just looking for folks that can sell, but you're looking for folks that can understand how to sell something that creates immense value for a client. So they have to come through a program. Then you're not going to just hire students who uh, came out of finance or accounting or fill in the blank. Those are great, great industries, but I have two degrees in finance and it never taught me anything outside of the investments piece of financial planning. So I'm not, I'm not dogging that, that area, but what I'm saying is let's encourage universities, one, to have these types of programs and show them that's when I create my practice who I want to hire from. You know, I talk to a lot of young advisors and there's a lot of advisors who have a lot of passion around financial planning. And I think this is a great like action item of like, you know, getting involved and and showing, showing what this is. But what are the conversations that are happening right now that are really helping to shape our profession? Like what are kind of those hot button topics right now that are, that are important for us to continue on as a profession? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know that I have my thumb on all of those. Um, one is just how to employ this next generation. So the interfacing of, uh, of, of a generation who built practices and they built it around oftentimes access to a product that's now shifting to advice. 
and they're looking to hire a next generation of uh, uh, of those to take over their practice. So when I look at that, it's just it's it's continuity of, of a practice, right? Uh, I I talk on that area a lot, millennials in financial planning, and one of the the statistics that I give firms is if you look across all channels from wirehouse to RIA, on average, a quarter of our clients are over the age of seventy. So this is an issue just in book diversification in of itself. A quarter of our clients are withdrawing funds. And if you look at their asset allocations, they're not tailored to growth. Because of that, it's a portion of our book that really needs a lot of help, of course, in the decumulation phase. But it's of course it's a percentage of our book that is not growing as rapidly. We need to think about diversification of uh, human capital. We need to think about diversification of our books uh, in general across age and other areas, industries, of course, and um, how we can not just think about that from a portfolio standpoint, but from how we practice. So uh, interfacing this next generation into our firms. I think is is complex. I wish it was so easy as saying hire a 22-year-old who has experience in financial planning and everything's going to be golden. But it doesn't work out so cleanly. So continuing those discussions in how do we do that well? How do I create an incentive mechanism that works really well with this next generation so that they want to give me their utmost? That's one area that I think is really important too. Coming together on um, common practice. So we do this to some extent by our trade associations. So um, you'll see this in the gathering and these different sub groups inside of FPA and NAPFUN and all these uh, member organizations where we'll uh, begin to talk about, hey, here's what I do at my firm. What do you do? Or some of them will talk to some extent about best practices. But if we can do that more globally and say, there's at least some things that we can all agree on. Clients at this stage need X or clients at that stage need, need Y. And that's the starting point through which and the lens through which we would begin to give holistic advice to them. So coming together and maybe establishing some common practice, I think is going to be a big piece. And then uh, a third really hot topic that I'm seeing is just the integration of technology. When we look at technology, it oftentimes creates fear. One of the analogies I use when I talk is this idea of um, uh, fear of, of robo-technology taking over our practice. And, and the analogy that I use is when I get on a plane and I walk in, the cockpit door is always open. Why is the cockpit door open? Well, it's for comfort, really. It doesn't need to be open, but it allows me to walk on a plane, look in that door and see that there's a human being behind the controls. I don't look in there and say, wow, this thing looks like it could fly itself. Let me move this pilot out of the way and I'm going to take over. Nor do I, when I get on a plane and that door's open, I turn to the steward or stewardess and say, why is there not a pilot in there? And they say, don't worry, this plane can fly itself. I don't get on that plane. I don't know about you, but I have no interest in flying on that plane. And so uh, I, I think our fear of robo-technology is one or, or artificial intelligence entering into financial planning is, is unfound because it allows us to lever and standardize the things that could be standardized and spend more time on the organic nature of what it is that we do. Think about a pilot. When a pilot's flying that plane, a computer overwhelmingly is controlling a large number of the processes. It frees the pilot up 
to think about the broader implications of the plane and begin to set uh, uh, course corrections and altitude and all of these different things to make you more comfortable. They have freed up capacity to be able to focus on the aspects of your flight to make it even safer than it would have been otherwise. So I think when we when we think about technology in the future of our practices, uh, there, there should be no fear there. Rather, it should be integrative in how we propel our practices into the future. You know, we talked a lot about other professions. Are other professions having kind of the same like jolt with technology? Man, I wish I had a great answer for that, Hannah. I I think um, to some extent, yes. Anytime change is introduced, there's going to be people who fear that. And that that's that's global in, in any profession or just in life in general. So yeah, you, you, you see that, um, let's say in the accounting world, um, there was some fear that, oh, you know, with the advent of um, software that could calculate one's uh, tax state, uh, or do a basic 1040 and make recommendations. Are we going to all, are we all going to be out of, out of our jobs? And it really hasn't had a massive implications on the day-to-day operations of a CPA, but what it has done is cause CPAs to broaden some of their services that they're offering. And so, um, you look at the medical profession, same type of thing are, are from, from a medical standpoint, are doctors going to be irrelevant? Can I hop on web MD? and no longer need a doctor, well, I mean, that's a breeding ground for hypochondriacs to freak out, right? Every time I get on WebMD, I don't know about you, but it always points to cancer. It's like I got a cough and then two steps later I have cancer. (laughs) How did did this happen? So uh, the need for, for a human being and uh, it is, is always going to be there. However, uh, th- there is going to be fear in that transitionary state. And I'll tell you, the transition is happening. Disruptive innovation is happening faster than ever before. And I don't think that's going to slow down. What that means is we've got to be continually innovative in a way in which we provide for our clients. There's no more coasting in the future. One of the ideas that I'm fascinated by, you know, you talked about that common practice. And in my experience, it's been everybody talks about financial planning, but it's really hard for people to get to actually know how to do financial planning. And and so I'm really interested in that idea um, about how do we, are they just general standards that we set up? You know, so somebody who's in debt, who has, you know, I mean, go for a millennial example, but if they have, you know, student loans, credit card debt and want to buy a house, like this is kind of the order of recommendations. Like, is that kind of what you're envisioning or how, what, can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Um, I think at this juncture, uh, I'm really good at pointing out the problems without good solutions. So let me just be honest with that right, right now. Um, I, I don't have a, a perfect answer for you, uh, whether or not this is done across the life cycle. And so what we do is sell people a suit and uh, it's off the rack that it solves their general needs. But as um, they become more sophisticated, that we create more of a tailored suit for them uh, with different, you know, uh, colors of, of, uh, of cloth and specific cuts, etc. That might be the best analogy that I can think of for going forward. Now, how to play that out in practicality, uh, a little more complicated, um, because we're organic beings 
And as organic beings, we're going to approach money, not necessarily thinking in terms of maximizing at least what would be commonplace utility. So we may do things that are irrational, at least irrational in the way in which others view us or irrational in the way in which uh, the average populace would have approached a problem. So it's it's tough to come up with standards. However, the medical profession's done it. And that's, that's organic. I mean, you want to talk about something organic. What about being sick? It could be any part of your body. You can come in with a headache and it could be tons of different. I mean, it could be a nerve in your back that's creating a problem in your brain. There are all sorts of, of diagnostics, though, that at least would allow us to determine where the problem point is and point you in the right direction. And I think for financial planning, that's what we need. We need to begin to create that baseline standard at minimum for diagnosis and then recommendations that at minimum would say, this is a prudent decision in this instance going forward. So what does that look like in practicality? Is it a repository? Is it the WebMD of financial planning? Is it the WebFP where it's sort of the baseline and we can even provide that to the common customer to, to start to self-diagnose? Is it, um, you know, just some basic rubrics of creating the, the suit that can then be tailored? I'm uncertain what, what that would look like specifically, uh, but I can tell you we have information that we've never had before in the form of behavioral understanding of how people spend their money. We've got data points like never, like we've never had in the past. You know, as you're, you're saying all this, you know, I'm, I'm part of Sudden Money Institute. And one of the things that they have been just harping on, I mean, just over the past year, just repeatedly is they have to bring systems and processes to transitions and that softer side of money, which is really kind of what their focus has been. So I think that there are groups, and I, I know you would agree, but like there are groups that are trying to kind of make headway on this. It's just, it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> It is. And it, re and it requires, I think, a setting for um, a lot of us to come together and begin to um, cut through some some of these issues and um, understand that there's not going to be 100 percent agreement, but at least have some of those conversations. I mean, that's that's why I'm excited about this conference coming up and even the the ability to to ask a couple of people, hey, you've been in the industry for a while. What do you think about this? That's the beginnings, an organic conversation of saying, what do you think? And then beginning to create that repository where a multitude of people have a voice in setting some of those baseline standards. I mean, the reality is if the state gets involved in this, if we become a hyper-regulated profession, they're going to say what those standards are. We're going to have influence on it, of course. But uh, it would be great as a profession if we'd come together. And, and the CFP board is done that to some extent, right? With the topics, these are the defining topics that are necessary um, that we think of whenever they do the industry analysis of what financial planning actually is. Uh, going forward, it would be even better to begin to set some of those future metrics. And uh, I think that's going to take a coming together of academia and industry, right? So that academics can take the input of industry saying, we think that this is the case. And then academics can put that into the lab and say, all right, we can prove that it's the case. Not to say that academics are the only people that can do that and, and, and uh, industry folks are the only people that can do the other. It's a matching and a coming together of those two worlds. 
So I completely agree that we have to grow together with academia. So as practicing planners, and I think you offer such a good perspective because you were in industry before you went into academia, how do we partner with academia? So part of it is reaching out to your local university and um, just getting involved at the granular level of sharing some of, of your ideas with this next generation. So I'm teaching capstone right now, which is the final uh, class where you put all the modules of planning together. I would argue, honestly, that capstone is one of the few true holistic courses that are taught at the academic level. Each of the others are the tools. They're the sub areas, right? Investments, retirement, tax, state, so on and so forth. We do teach those holistically in saying, okay, from when we're in tax, don't forget about how it affects your investments, et cetera, et cetera. But the only course where you really, at least required by the CFP board, start to bring all that together is capstone. So you've got this course that folds in all of these avenues together. Reach out to universities, especially those that have a financial planning program in place, and talk about what you're doing. Share some of that secret sauce of saying, when clients come in, this is one of the pieces that we do, and it might not be honestly a true, um, a, a, a true like calculation. It's it's the, maybe it's a behavioral element of how a client comes in. And we make them feel the importance of that. Um, so I would say reach out to. Um, to academics in your area and anyone, of course, that, that hears this, if you, if you don't know, uh, what university might be in your area, reach out to me, I'll point you in the right direction or I'll have you down to college station to where you can talk to my students. Um, and then at conferences. So that's the, there, there are a few conferences that tend to bring more academics together with the industry. Um, you see a decent number at FPA, for example, at FPA, uh, national conference, um, to some extent, uh, NAPFA, NAGDA, uh, there are a number of conferences where you see academics show up with practitioners. So I, th I think creating a space at those conferences for those two worlds to better collide would be excellent because because as you know, a lot of academics are a bit more introverted and they may not just go seek out a practitioner and say, what are you doing? But creating a space for those two worlds to collide at a time when you're going to have a lot of one and the other together, I, I can't see anything but positive coming out of that. So that would be a, an example of a way to practically move forward and bring uh, overlapping those two worlds together. You know, and another kind of another angle from that I'd love your opinion on is, you know, you guys are doing all of this great research. Like, how do we tap into that, you know, in in like our everyday lives our everyday, like, you know, lives of a practice? Yeah. So therein lies the complexity of being an academician. So just to give you a, a small background into the, the tenure process, and I think a lot of people know this, but some might not, to become... A, at, a, at, a, at a research institution, especially, to, ha to keep your job, you've got to do research. And if you're doing this research, typically it's got to be published in a journal with a certain ranking characteristic. Unfortunately, a lot of those journals with high-level rankings are really not widely read by anything, anybody other than academics, because sometimes those articles, um, tend to have a whole lot of specificity and, and technical pieces with, uh, complex math and, and things like that. So 
there there's this weird disincentive as an academic i don't necessarily have an incentive to go out and publish in a trade journal where um a, a large number of uh industry professionals would actually read what I'm writing until I'm a little bit later in my career and I've established tenure. So we've got an incentive problem, I think, of matching academia to industry. I'll tell you, there's a couple ways to to fix some of that. It's uh, having journalists and others, and they're doing this now to some extent, uh, those who have an interest in reading those academic journals, taking some of those articles and that some of which may have direct practicality and others, which may be a bit more esoteric, boil those down and then produce it out to the industry in a way in which the industry could say, okay, this has very practical implications to my practice specifically. A lot of uh, professional speakers are doing that. Now I look at the kitses and others that read a lot of that academic press and then they, they boil it down and, and come up with practical application to uh, to, to the industry. Now, hopefully, your, your, your podcast, to some extent, Hannah, is doing this as well, of interfacing with maybe some complex research and breaking it down to the point where it makes more sense in the application of practice. You know, as we kind of wrap up and we've talked about, you know, like the past and the present, you know, where do you see the future of financial planning going? Yeah, that's the biggest crystal ball. I wish, again, that I had the perfect answer for you. I'll answer this more from the standpoint of us as academics. I think as academics, there has to be a a greater uh, embracing of the field of financial planning in colleges and universities across the country. So I, I see that actually happening in the future, just given the growth rate that I've seen thus far of universities beginning to accept financial planning as a true profession. It's not just the rest redheaded stepchild in finance. It's, it's a actual standalone discipline that deserves that much. And so the future from an academic standpoint, I think is moving beyond the basic topics just to set for the CF. And moving into areas, let's say, like emotional intelligence, so that our students are even better prepared when they come out. They could have the most technical knowledge in the world, but if they don't know how to convey that value to a client, it doesn't have nearly that much value. That means that they are going to have to partner with somebody that can convey that value. And there's nothing wrong with that. We have people that do that. But creating a well-rounded student of the future that understands, uh, like I said, emotional intelligence, the complexities of building a practice and um, building a business and maintaining a business, the ability to engage other employees or colleagues, these sort of softer, or they may be referred to as soft pieces of the discipline, understanding the emotions of our clients. So counseling, uh, I think, is really important to integrate into um, financial planning of the future so that we can empathetically embrace and approach our clients with a quantitative solution to a qualitative problem. Um, I think as we extend into the future of embracing technology, we have an immense number of data points that are going to be coming at us and our clients. So our clients are producing massive amounts of transactions. How does that impact the way in which we address our clients? So I've said this before. I think the future of financial planning is integrative enough with our transactions that it sends an auto-breaking 
uh, impulse to the client. I'll give you an example of this. We, we moved forward a couple of years. I think it's by 2020, we're supposed to have auto braking technology in all new cars. I, I, I may be wrong on that, but I think that's about the timeline. So in the near future, every car is going to have an auto brake in it. What does that mean? That means there's a laser or some kind of mechanism that shoots out of the front of the car that as you get too close to the car in front of you says, I'm going to begin the process of braking. I'm not going to slam on the brakes, but I'm going to give you an indication that there's a problem approaching so that you can react to it. Imagine that. Imagine that with our clients in our relationship with them so that we have data points that we've captured from these clients that give us an indication whenever they come in and meet with us, maybe it gives us an indication that we need to meet with them. So we get something in our inbox that says client X has had the following behavioral things that have occurred over the last uh, month and a half. These are, these are flags. They may not mean anything important, but there are a couple red flags that say you may want to reach out to Jim or Sally and see what's going on so that we don't have to always feel and know when there may be a problem with Jim and Sally, but our data has come in and told us that there could be a problem, almost forensic accounting, if you may. Imagine that. Imagine the impulse to a client uh, when a client's getting ready to make a decision that may not be optimal in approaching their goals. They get just just a tactile impulse that says, think about this, an awareness, if you may, of the behavior that you're about to take place in. I think that is the future of integrating technology and financial planning together. It's taking all these complex data points and breaking them down into terms that are going to impact our clients. Next, it's going to be a future of data sifters, that is, financial planners that are going to understand well how to interface with that data to empathetically, which a computer cannot do, approach our clients and uh, help them address not only the present, but the future of motivating them towards achievement of their goals or motivating them on something so simple on, on the decumulation phase of, I've had clients I've dealt with where I had to talk to them about, you need to be spending money. You have the money. You said you want this, spend it. It's so exciting to seeing where we could go with financial planning. And really, if like you said at the beginning about how, you know, the people who really created financial planning, like what was at the very core of it was the client's best interest. And, you know, hearing you talk about this, all this technology, I mean, there's part of me that's kind of afraid of like, well, clients need me. But at the same time, like it would be so amazing for that client. And so that's such a great technology. So exciting about what how much better life could be made for our clients. I agree completely, Hannah. I think um, if we can free people up so that they can live their lives better, then we've done our job. We've taken away some of the stress. It's not that we lie to them and tell them there is no stress, but we've taken some of the impact of financial decisions away from them so that they can live their lives to the fullest. To me, if we can do that well, then we've accomplished something great with our clients. Thanks for joining us this week. As a reminder, if you want to attend the next gen gathering, you still have a chance. Be sure to go to financialplannerpodcast.com to register for a free registration for the event. We'll talk to you guys next week.